0: We continue ahead in the book of Luke, looking again, part two of this sermon series. I don't know how many parts there will be. Uh, The Empty Tomb. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse 50 of chapter 23 through to verse 12 of chapter 24. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now behold... There was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I think most of us have read 1 Corinthians 15, one of the clearest, most encouraging scriptures regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in it we find some important words for us to consider today in today's sermon. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have Perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive but each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, put, that he who put all things under him is accepted. So <clears throat> what we're going to do today is we're going to have another sermon looking at the timing of the resurrection and how the Lord God emphasizes some very important aspects of the resurrection to us through this timing Last week we looked at the timing, the when aspect of the resurrection. First, looking at the first day Sabbath. Do you recall that every single gospel account? It doesn't say the first day of the week in the in the Greek. It actually says on the first day Sabbath, and how we came to understand that that day, that Sunday was the first Christian Sabbath, when the Sabbath was transferred from Saturday, the last day of the week, to Sunday on the first day of the week, actually called the first day Sabbath. And how we saw that that day was not a Jewish Sabbath. The Feast of First Fruits that took place on that first day of the week that year, it is not a Sabbath day. So the only conclusion we can reach is that that day, by the Gospel authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking back on that day, they called it the first Christian Sabbath. Using the typical lingo of the Jews from the Septuagint that had been used to name Sabbath days that occurred during the week. It was a first day Sabbath. It's the first day Sabbath. And it came to be the way that they referenced the Christian Sabbath in the New Testament. As we saw in other verses in the New Testament, and ultimately came to be called the Lord's Day by the time that John was writing in Revelation. So, what do we make of that? Well, that's really important, isn't it? Remember, we talked about that last week. We're here on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and I want you to be 100% confident that this is The Sabbath of God commanded to us in the Word of God between now and until Jesus Christ returns in victory. So that was important, right? Seeing that, because it's not in most English translations. It just says first day of the week. Next, by way of review, we saw that they came very early in the morning. And so this gets to our eagerness to be near the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, we discussed what is the state of your heart In terms of the Lord's Day, where we come together to seek the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek Him together. Are you like those women who came so early, filled with eagerness to be near to Christ? And we want to have that in our hearts as we come to worship Him on the Lord's Day. And you see there in your notes that we'll look at the who, the where, the why, what they found, their initial response. We'll look at the two angels announcing the resurrection and their faith response. And we'll go through all of those parts of the resurrection, the empty tomb, over the coming weeks. But today, I want to conclude this section on the win by looking at the Feast of First Fruits. And I think it's important for us to understand this feast, to look at it a bit. And I hope you'll study it some more as a result of today's sermon. I hope you'll desire to understand it more deeply as a result of today's sermon, and that you'll see that understanding the Feast of First Fruits will increase your understanding and appreciation for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this day after the weekly Sabbath was the Feast of First Fruits. And when we get to the text in Leviticus 23, you'll see that the feast of first fruits was to occur after the sabbath during the week of unleavened bread and so Christ our lord arose from the dead on the feast of first fruits this particular year in AD 30 that first day of the week was a sunday was the first the feast of first fruits and it occurred after two prior sabbaths which we'll we'll talk about again in the sermon today so what i want us to do is Learn some more together through looking at the scriptures about the feast of first fruits. Okay? We'll go through this text in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14, and then we'll go back through 1 Corinthians 15 again and learn more. Paul opens up and teaches us what the fulfillment of first fruits is in that text in 1 Corinthians 15. So, Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14, about the feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. And the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord, for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread, nor parched grain, nor fresh grain, until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So first, let's look at the timing of when this day was supposed to take place. You see there in verse 11, it says, on the day after the Sabbath. What's being referenced here is the normal weekly Sabbath that occurs during the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these verses, as I said already, they come immediately after the Lord's commands regarding the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of first fruits occurred on the day immediately following the weekly Sabbath that occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as I've said. And in AD 30, as we've talked about multiple times, we see that this particular Feast of Firstfruits occurred on the first day of the week after the Sabbath, the regular Sabbath, which was after the Passover High Sabbath, Sabbath which was after the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, you can imagine that there could be different kinds of weeks where the Passover Sabbath, High Sabbath Day might be. And we'll use our days because it's really hard to think in Jewish calendars for me. Let's say the Passover had occurred on a Tuesday, right? Well, then the Feast of Firstfruits would have occurred on the following Sunday, many days later, you see? And so you can see where you could have many days that were not Sabbath days between the, Sabbath, the, the High Sabbath of Passover and the regular yeah. weekly Sabbath. This particular year, A.D. 30, the Passover Sabbath and the regular Sabbath were back to back. And in this particular year, the Feast of First Fruits followed. So the Feast of 1st let's think about it. The Feast of Firstfruits. It was therefore established by God as a fixed day within the seven days of unleavened bread. It was always going to be during the time of unleavened bread. Hence, even though the Feast of Unleavened Bread focuses upon the atoning blood and the scarcity associated with the exodus, Passover, and flight, within this feast, there was always a day pointing toward the resurrection of the Passover lamb and the eternal resurrection abundance and peace for all those who are in him. So every year, year after year, there's this reminder right in the midst, during this feast, of what's to come. So the feast of unleavened bread is looking back in faith at what God has already done. But the feast of first fruits is looking forward to what God will do in the future. And it was all there year after year. And I hope you'll see that the feast of first fruits had no leaven. And we'll see when, as we've already read, there's no leaven in this cereal, in this, in this grain offering. Whereas 50 days later, and we'll get to this feast, we're going to talk about it. Pentecost, which is linked to first fruits by this 50 days. We should see them together. They're different, but they're connected together by this 50-day time frame. God's teaching us to think of these two together. And you'll see more why when we get to how these... Feasts point to the various resurrections that are in view in Scripture. But there's no leaven at first fruits, but there is leaven at Pentecost. So, this year, 8030, I've already kind of spoken about this. I'm going to work my way backwards a little bit. It's going to be confusing, but I'll, I'll, I'll confuse myself and all of us again, but eventually, hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll have it straight. It seems most likely. That in A.D. 30, that eighty thirty 30 is the year the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And that that year, this particular week, occurred in this fashion. The Lord Jesus Christ would have been resurrected on Sunday, Nisan 17, during the hours of darkness. On the day of the first fruits Feast. Okay? Nisan 17, during the hours of darkness. And we would call that Sunday by the time the sun comes up. Now, we've already said he was in the grave for two Sabbath days prior to this, okay? The first Sabbath day was the high Sabbath of Passover day, which began Thursday evening, Nisan 15, included the Thursday evening, Nisan 15, and the Friday day of Nisan 15. Okay, so it included part of Thursday and part of Friday. The second Sabbath was the weekly Sabbath, which followed right after it, which began Friday evening, Nisan 16, and then included in uh, Saturday day, this in 16. And then it goes into 17, which is the day of resurrection. Going back again, before the Sabbath days, Christ was crucified on a day of preparation. That's an indisputable fact from multiple scriptures that he was not crucified on a Sabbath day. And he was not crucified on a day two or three or four or five days before a Sabbath day. He was crucified on the day immediately before a Sabbath day, which they call a preparation day, and that was Thursday, Thursday day Nisan 14. Going back one more step, the Last Supper would have been on what we call Wednesday evening, which would have been, you know, it said after the sun sets, right? Which would have been the evening of Nisan 14. So, this to me is worth emphasizing. You're like, Dr. Clark, how does that apply to our lives today? Well, the the one main thing which we've talked about is that God teaches us through His timing. Things were done as it was determined by God. And He instructs us in this timing. We've looked at the events of the Passion Week of Christ and how every step of the way He was walking with the lambs. And where the lambs were is where He was. And that timing is lost outside of this particular chronology of the Passion Week. Well, similarly, the Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected on the first fruits. He didn't have to be resurrected on the first fruits day. The Lord God could have had Him resurrected on any day. But He wasn't. And 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says... Christ, the first fruits. So, as we read Leviticus 15, again, I hope you will be thinking of Christ, the first fruits. And I'm sharing with you my thoughts as I went through this text, and I'll invite you to much deeper study than this, looking at Christ, the first fruits in this feast. So, verse 10. When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So the newness and uncertainty is present here. The newness and the uncertainty of entering the land of Canaan is answered by God to his people with this feast of first fruits. Now, think about it. The idea of first means what? Well, there's going to be a second and a third. There's more to come. It's a concept filled with hope. It's not the feast of last fruits. It's not the feast of no more fruits. It's the feast of first fruits. And we could really see God saying it's the feast of eternal fruits. So he will give them more food over time. In this text, he's telling the people of Israel, I'm going to give you more food. You bring what you first take at that first beginning of the barley harvest. You bring it to me and you wave it before me. And this is the barley harvest. This is the time of year for the barley harvest, not the wheat harvest, which is later, which Pentecost is attached to. So, the people of Israel can know that they will get more harvests from God, that He's going to feed them in this new land of uncertainty. That's quite a promise. So, what about Christ's resurrection? Well Christ's resurrection is the first fruit, fruit promise of the new covenant land. When we think of Israel and the promised land, we know that the old covenant promised land is, the, is a type, not just for heaven, but for the whole world. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? The whole world. So the harvest of the world, brothers and sisters, is underway as the unfolding fulfillment of the resurrection first fruit promise. And you are one to whom the sickle has come. If you are sitting here trusting in Christ, you are part of the first fruit fulfillment that is underway right now. Praise be to God, yes? <laughs> All right, verse 11. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. So the idea here is acceptance. Okay, The Lord accepts something. And He accepts this first fruit sheaf waving before Him on behalf of the people. So this action is a way that the people are received by God. It's not just that they're presenting to him grain in the context of a promise. But when they do this, in faith towards him, they are received. So Christ, our perfect lamb, Christ, if you will, the first grain, and also the great high priest, and this is where we have to see Christ doing multiple things here, He'd been raised up by the Father in heaven on this day. He's alive now. He's the first grain from the ground. He is the first fruit. What does He do? He waves Himself before God. He presents Himself before the Father as the first fruit of the coming world harvest. What did He say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. So He waves Himself before the Father on this day. And in Him we are accepted. Next. 23 verse 12. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, burnt offering itself is six, eight, ten sermons to really just dig into what the burnt offering was, what was going on at the temple, at the tabernacle. Okay? So there's way more about burnt offering than what I'm bringing you today. Okay? But, bedrock idea for the burnt offering is that the burnt offering serve as an atonement event for the worshiper. Okay? Even in Christ's resurrection, even in the ever-looking-forward hope of future resurrections, the people of Israel, even though they're looking forward to all of these promises of more grain, they can't stop being before God, thanking Him and seeking atonement for their sins. So even in the ever-looking-forward for us now, as Christians, we're, the, we're in the ever looking forward hope of future resurrections, right? There's spiritual resurrections underway. If you've been born again from above, you've experienced the first part of the resurrection process that God will take you through. But we're also waiting on future resurrections of our body in a perfect place with no more sin and no more sorrow and no more sadness and no more division and no more darkness and no more death with the people who've already gone before. But even as we're looking forward, as we should, to all of the great things that God is going to do, not just in eternity, but in this world. Brothers and sisters, we're always looking back and remembering and celebrating Christ's death. And and you can really... We could, we could go a long time talking about this. What if you're the kind of person who just looks forward... And never looks back to the cross. And never looks back and gives thanks. And is not one who's offering this burnt offering all the time. Even in the midst of the story of victory and hope. Do you see? It can become unbalanced. Or what if you're the person. And all you ever do is talk about Christ on the cross. And the forgiveness of your sins on the cross. And you never see Christ resurrected. Proven before hundreds. Ascended. Reigning. And carrying out the first fruit promises. But you have to remember, the lamb who was slain is who we saw in heaven after his resurrection. He wants to be remembered that way as he reigns. Whose wounds are yet visible above. So, we must not ever be so focused upon Christ's future hope that we forget Christ's past sacrifice. All right, next. Leviticus 23, 13. It's grain offering, and what I said about burnt offering is, is kind of similar. It's drink offering. These are, again, like whole sermons. Each of these. It's grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and it's drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. So what we're seeing here is essentially unleavened bread and wine. Basically what we're seeing there, mentioned in that section. So when you you look at commentaries, the big thing with the grain offering is it's symbolizing gratitude and consecration to God. And usually it was mixed in with the burnt offering and would be burnt at the same time. The drink offering of wine brings forth both sacrifice and joy. Wine, we know, blood, sacrifice, but also wine makes the heart glad. So we see both of those coming to us. I do want us to note the absence of leaven as opposed to the grain offerings of Pentecost. So in this portion, the clearest thing we see amongst many is the body and blood of Christ as our first fruit. So it's similar to the burnt offering. We're looking back to Christ's body and blood next, Leviticus, Leviticus twenty three fourteen, You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever through your generations and all your dwellings. So the Old Testament first fruits feast served as an annual day of giving thanks to God for his past blessings and also his future promises of blessing. And if you think about it, in this feast we find the great Principle of first expressing gratitude before partaking of God's blessings. Now, look, Caleb knows this. You know, the other day, it's his birthday. I think we were having hot dogs, which he loves. And everything's like smelling up in the kitchen and everybody wants to eat, right? But nobody's eating yet, I don't think. I don't know, maybe I grabbed a chip. I probably did. But you know there's something in your head when you're reaching in the bag, you're like, I should probably... Does anybody else here feel that way? Well, why is that? Because it's this eternal principle that we just know that we should give thanks to God before we dig into his blessings. That it's, I mean, an outward expression. That's what we see here, an outward expression. Some some kind of outward expression of gratitude. And every family has their own tradition at this point in time. So mealtime giving of thanks is an ongoing expression of this but even more broadly we give thanks for Christ our savior always in all things before all things and for all things so the feast of first fruits points to a life of gratitude a life of praise and thanks to Christ always so now let's with this in mind let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 okay and let's go through 1 Corinthians 15 Seeing Christ as our first fruits and learning from Paul about how the feast of first fruits is fulfilled in Christ, and as you will see, not only in his resurrection, but in all the things that flow to this cosmos from his resurrection. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So the first thing he says to these people is like, why would you want this worldview? This is crazy. There's no hope now or in the future. How can you have find any hope in what you're presenting? That somehow Christianity without the resurrection... Now, Christ state, uh, Paul states the fact. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Okay? So here is the unassailable fact of history. Christ is risen from the dead. And then he goes on and says that since he's risen from the dead, something has happened. And I'm going to take you into the hope that you are denying. The hope that you're denying both for this world and the next. You see... The first fruits hope is not just a hope for the next world. It's not just a hope for this world. In the same way that not believing in the resurrection destroys hope for this life and the next, believing in the resurrection establishes fantastical hope for this life and the next. Hope you will see that. In Paul's response, when he goes to the first fruits, he's showing these people that their hope is now and forever because of the resurrection. And in today's world, we need to hear this, don't we? Because Christ and the gospel have been truncated. And it's always by and by in the sky. Brothers and sisters, that is false teaching about who Jesus Christ is, where he is, what he is doing, and what he is committed to. He goes on and he teaches them this important truth through the Feast of First Fruits. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Okay. So if there's no resurrection at all, then we have no hope for the future because Christ was not resurrected. If there's no resurrection, then Christ wasn't resurrected. Paul contrasts no hope, total despair, now and forever, with what is really ours in Christ. You see, this is what he's doing. He's using contrast to instruct us. Paul says that since Christ is risen from the dead, he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that is to be instructive to us. What does this mean? How does that counter the hopelessness that they had laid out? In this text, God shows us by His Spirit the actual fulfillment of the Feast of Firstfruits. The fulfillment is in Christ's resurrection and all the subsequent resurrections in Christ to come. Verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So, brothers and sisters, Christ's resurrection is what the Feast of First Fruits is all about. And in Christ's life, his now invincible life, his resurrected life, all shall be made alive in him. The grain harvest points to souls being resurrected. That's what we see. Okay? And when it says all shall be made alive, that's either a reference to all the elect or a reference to the general resurrection from the dead that will occur at the end of time. And theologians debate about that. But in either case, this is coming as a result of Christ's life first. Verse 23 and 24, but each one in his own order. Okay? So there's going to be these resurrections that occur in a certain order. Christ, the first fruits, so his was first, Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming, and that word is parousia, and I do not believe it refers to his final coming. I believe it refers to what everyone was expecting, his near imminent parousia that we see occurred in conjunction with the events surrounding AD 70. Afterward comes the end. And that word, that Greek word there, then, is is an indeterminate length of time. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So here Paul brings in the more specific eschatological fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits. So the Feast of First Fruits has specific eschatological fulfillments throughout history. I'm not going to go through all the details. I do encourage you to listen to and read Pastor Kaiser's sermon called. The barley harvest that he preached on Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And he goes through a detailed summary of these resurrections that I'm going to briefly tell you about. It seems most likely that the barley harvest resurrections were occurring between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I learned about this It seemed very bizarre to me. It seemed very bizarre. I I knew Jesus got raised from the dead, and then everybody else is coming back from the dead at the end. Is that kind of what you'd been exposed to in your life as well, in modern Christianity? Jesus came back from the dead, and then everybody else is going to come back from the dead at the end. Well, you know, there were resurrections that occurred the same time Jesus was resurrected. You look in the book of Matthew. There were... Old Testament saints that came out of the graves and walked around in Jerusalem and were witnessed by people. That's a resurrection. And then we see in AD 70 we believe, uh, interpreting the book of Revelation, that the two witnesses are another example of resurrection. I mean, not resuscitated like Lazarus, because he died again. But I mean, resurrected and brought to heaven. Yeah. Yeah, I had the same look. Okay? And so that's the barley harvest resurrection and that's A.D. 30 to 70 afterward those who are Christ at his coming so the feast of first fruits occurred at the barley harvest beginning and then the barley harvest continued for another month or so okay <clears throat> but guess what there's a wheat harvest and what feast would you guess is connected with the wheat harvest 50 days later pentecost So they're analogous feasts. And it it, it seems appropriate to think that perhaps one, one is more local, associated with the Old Testament saints, and then the one is larger and more global, associated with the whole world. And in fact, when we get to Pentecost, you'll see first fruits is mentioned in Pentecost as well. So the idea of first fruits is present in both of these harvests. So the wheat harvest, resurrection, end of time. And that's the phrase there, then comes the end. And that's what we all would have heard about and known about as the general resurrection to occur at the end of time. And I'll tell you something else. Understanding this just obliterates the confusion of Revelation 20 and the first and the second resurrection. It all just falls into place when you you understand this. So I commend that to you. Uh, if you haven't already studied that. Verses 25 and 27. So, you know, Paul could have stopped here, but he didn't. He shows us how the verses that are quoted from Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is the description of the final outcome of what is predicted in the Feast of Firstfruits, what is predicted in the Feast of Pentecost. Here we see it connected together? In this text. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So let me ask you a question of logic. How many enemies will not be under his feet when he comes back? How many? Zero except death. Right? So he's going to come back and as he comes back in physical, visible, tangible, huggable form, as he comes back, that's when he's going to destroy death and how's he going to do it? Because he's going to bring everybody back from the dead. Out of the ocean, out of the ground, everybody dead comes back on that day. So it's going to be a great day, brothers and sisters. And I want to tell you the truth. I wouldn't mind being buried somewhere like near you guys to be able to be together on that day. Because we're going to see it happen. We're going to rise up and we're going to see this happening on that day. It's coming. So that's thrilling, isn't it? And so Paul is telling us that the end of Christ's resurrection, the end of the first fruit, is this fantastic global victory over sin and death and hell before he comes back. Let that sink in. So the dominion commandment that we were given in the first part of Genesis, brothers and sisters, sin doesn't get the say on that. Let me ask you this, which is greater, grace or sin? You know the answer, grace. So can God in his power, by the power of the resurrection that is now in us, can he restore us to be like the second Adam and to accomplish the creation mandate that was given to us? Can we say yes and amen? Do not look at this world and the fractured nature of things and the ugliness that we see for you to decide what's going to happen in the future. You look to the empty tomb. You look to the Father of lights who raised up the Lord Jesus Christ and who will continue to strengthen and raise up His bride in this earth and bring us together to work together as a unified body in the earth. So Christ's resurrection began this process. He is the first fruit guarantee that this is now underway in the earth. You see that? Right there in the day that He was resurrected, He's coming out and He's saying, it's not just me and it's not just here. Because the day that God our Father in Heaven chose to bring Him back from the dead. He delivers that message to us. He is the resurrected one, brothers and sisters. And His first fruit day of resurrection points us all to His final day of victorious harvest and teaches us that we're a part of this. And that should be thrilling to you to know that He has placed you in this world to be a part of what He's doing. So, some questions uh, briefly. I-, I hope that as a result of this, you'll take more time. <clears throat> Will you take more time and look at First Fruits, the Feast of First Fruits, more closely to improve your understanding of the resurrection and to grow your faith and your hope and your life? So when you meditate upon the resurrection of Christ, bring in the concept of first fruits. Okay? And here's some questions along those lines. Do you consider the new covenant land as the entire globe? Do you? This world now. We sing, this is my father's world. Do you really believe that? Mm-hmm. Or do you think it's just a nice song we sing? Okay, here's another way of saying it. Those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ in His reign, are they trespassing on His land? There's only one answer, right? They're trespassers on His land. And He's very gracious to bless them with sunshine and rain as they use the fruits of His blessings to mock Him and deny Him. But they are trespassers because he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me the fulfillment of psalm 2 where the father said that he would raise him up and give him all the kingdoms and all the kings of the earth as his own so when you think of first fruits do you think of the here and now global outcome of the resurrection because remember paul's contrasting both of those things right he's going to first fruits to say how no you're wrong not only about having no hope now and no hope ever. Remember he said that. We're pitied in this life and in the life to come, if you believe that. And first fruits shows us the hope in both. Next, do you see Christ resurrected as accepted before God on your behalf? Now that's probably something you've thought about before. The resurrected one, he's the accepted one, and in him we're accepted. But I hope that you'll Find the Feast of first fruits is another way that God is delivering that glorious message to you. You are beloved. You are accepted. Not because of anything that you do or don't do. When you are faithless, He is faithful. And His love for you and me is because of Christ. It's because of Jesus. Oh, and if we would just believe that more deeply, I bet we'd love each other better, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we love each other better? Because the lamb who was slain is alive in heaven as our king. So when, when you see Christ as the slain lamb, you know, of course, that's the message that your king, one of the messages your king is sending to you. Your king has died for you. Your king accepts you. Your king has an open heart and mind and ear for you all the time. Next. Do you always look back to Christ's death with thanksgiving? Even as you're looking forward to Christ's victory in this world and eternity with great hope. You can assess yourself. You can look at yourself. Am I unbalanced? Am I spending All of my time looking back at the cross and none of my time moving forward through the life of Christ in His resurrection and His days on the earth, which we're going to get to, and all the things He did on the earth before He ascended, and then His ascension and what His his reign means about right now. See, when we say we fix our eyes on Jesus, what does that mean? Right? I mean, it's who He is, and who He is includes His history and His present activity and what he promises for the future. So we remain balanced by fixing our eyes on Jesus and considering all of who he is and what he has done according to his word. Do you give thanks for Christ's body and blood on the cross even as you worship his resurrected body in heaven? And, And it's just this beautiful simultaneous thing that he gives to us, this idea that his wounds are yet visible above that he intends for us to be meditating upon him in this way, as both our Savior and our King simultaneously. Are you grateful to Christ? Does I mean, is, is that mark your life? If you're a first fruit Christian, then you're a grateful Christian. And you know no matter what's going on in your life, you'll just look at people and you'll say, isn't he good? You, you know, you've been through some terrible things, right? You've lost things. Things have not worked out like you wanted. And people around you wonder how you can be happy. And because what's coming out of your mouth is, isn't He glorious? Look what He's done for me. I don't deserve what He's done for me. And look what He's given me in my life already. If I, was, if I was starving, naked, tortured for the remainder of my days, I could praise him if I could just see him in my mind's eye. Yes. We don't need another blessing ever to be grateful. First fruits Christians. Amen. 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 And this will change us, won't it? I mean, we'll be different kind of people. If, if this can be true of us. So guilty of ingratitude. So guilty of discontentment. May we just cry out to him to just help us and forgive us for this. All of us. So here on this resurrection day together. Does just the knowledge of the Lord's day. The knowledge of this day being the resurrection day. The knowledge of this day being the celebration of his first fruit, because we're here on the first day of Sabbath, aren't we? Does it point you to his ascension, his reign, and his total victory? As you ponder who he is, when you're coming here on the Lord's Day, thinking about it, do you have this kind of comprehensive view of what we're doing here? And why we're here and how we fit into this first fruits unfolding plan for Christ's continual spiritual resurrections and eventual bodily resurrections of his people. And the subsequent expressions of his kingdom in the earth and the eternal expressions of perfection that we'll experience because of him. May God grant us to fix our eyes on Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we, Lord God, as we come to Your Word, we rejoice in in Your Spirit teaching us. We rejoice in Your great sovereign plan for the very day that Jesus would come out of the grave. We rejoice in how You instruct us and teach us And how you draw our hearts closer to you and give us greater love for you as you increase our understanding for you. And we do indeed, Lord, again ask you to grant to us to be transformed into the likeness of Christ our Lord through the renewing of our minds. And that our flesh would be more and more conquered as you, Lord Jesus Christ, more and more live in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name.